Hello, and welcome to the Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery Podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. On this episode, I speak with Kristen Fortney, CEO of BioAge Labs. Now, before I tell you about BioAge, let me declare my bias. It's long bothered me that we invest so much more in treating symptoms of disease than underlying causes. And the biggest single risk factor for many chronic diseases, such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and neurodegenerative disorders, is one thing, aging. On a personal level, I do what I can to mitigate the effects of aging. This includes eating a healthy, plant-based diet and getting lots of exercise, but also more radical steps such as restricting calories and consuming about 17 pills a day worth of supplements that are backed by promising early research. I'm even now considering metformin, a long-used diabetes drug with many health benefits that will soon be tested for aging in a clinical trial. Now Kristen has taken a similar passion to another level. As the founder of BioAge Labs, she leads one of just a few companies focused explicitly on aging itself rather than just the diseases for which aging puts people at greater risk. In this episode, you'll learn how BioAge combines unique data sources with in silico analysis and lab experimentation to expedite the search for novel interventions that might just help you live healthier, longer. This episode is brought to you by BenchSci. BenchSci uses artificial intelligence to reduce the cost of scientific experiments. Use it to find research antibodies up to 24 times faster than using PubMed or Google Scholar. Just enter a protein of interest and filter by technique, organism, tissue, or 13 other options. BenchSci returns only relevant published figures and products. Researchers in 14 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and nearly 1,000 academic institutions now rely on BenchSci to find antibodies. It's free for researchers in academic and nonprofit institutions. You can sign up at BenchSci.com. If you work in industry, just use the contact form on BenchSci.com to reach out for a demo. And now, on to the interview. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the podcast. Simon, glad to be here. Uh, great. So what people don't know is we had a great chat just before I started recording here, and I'm very excited uh, to speak with you both from a professional perspective and a personal interest in longevity and anything we can do to improve healthy lifespan. Uh, but for those of the listeners who may not be as familiar with some of the research that's going on, why should we even focus on aging rather than individual diseases associated with aging? Why is that an area Uh, that people should even be looking at? Well, basically it's because aging is the single causal factor for a lot of different age-related diseases. So if you target them one at a time, you're going to run into trouble, which is what we're seeing right now. So so scientists have estimated that even if we could cure all cancers, um, you know, all over the world, that would only add about four years to the average lifespan because then something else is going to kill you, heart disease, diabetes. Um, In contrast, if we're able to extend human lifespan to the extent that we already can in mice, uh, that would add 10 years of healthy life to the average lifespan. So there's really a lot more impact to be had by targeting this one causal factor, aging, than any sort of single uh, one of the many diseases that associate with it. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's something that people don't appreciate is a lot of the diseases we now deal with are because we live longer and now we're dealing with all these diseases of aging. What are some of the misconceptions you encounter when you talk to people about uh, extending lifespan? You know, For example, one I often encounter is that they think that by extending lifespan, you're going to extend decrepitude and that they're just going to live longer but not healthier. Um, I know that that's an important one to debunk, but are there others as well? That's a great one to, to, to mention. It's actually really hard to decouple the two, right? I mean, to make them live longer, but decrepit the whole time. So at the edge of death, that, that's really challenging. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be harder to develop a drug that would extend your life and make you unhealthy. Then uh, that, that's why we've seen, like in all these interventions, these gene knockouts, these drugs like rapamycin, like metformin, that make mice live longer, they make them healthier too. These, these two things go hand in hand. You can't really decouple aging from disease. Hmm. But you could, I mean, I, I agree with you, but in theory, people might be thinking, oh, you'll be living longer, but on life support. But of course, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about e- extending youthfulness. Yeah, that's why we talk about extending the health span, just to get across that that's what we're focused on. No one wants to sort of stay in the hospital for another 20 years, slowly dying of chronic disease. Um, Definitely. Yeah, and we know that's achievable because those interventions that extend lifespan in model model systems also, for the most part, extend health span. And I mean, keep in mind, too, that for any one of these interventions, we're going to be monitoring health as well. <laughs> um, so you, you want to check all those boxes, not just the sort of time to death. Now, why do you think, until very recently, there has not been a lot of investment in longevity-related research Recently, there's been quite a lot more, especially since Google invested in Calico. But what are the reasons why we haven't seen until very recently and uh, a significant amount uh, of investment into this area of research? Um, so one of the reasons is that it just seems very hard, right? I mean, as you get older, all these things are going wrong and all these diseases are being affected. And, you, you know, curing cancer is hard enough, let alone curing cancer and diabetes heart disease simultaneously, which is is partly the promise of research focused directly on aging. And I think that what has spurred the recent investment has been in part that we've seen that it works and we've seen that it works in in complex animals. We've seen that it works in mice. So in 2009, that was when the rapamycin study was published uh, in mice by the NIA Interventions Testing Program. By feeding these middle-aged mice rapamycin for the rest of their lives, uh, it increased their lifespan by about 14%, and, uh, and it made them look healthier too. And that got everybody really excited, right? And so really the very first companies, Novartis uh, developed a rapalog based on that study and gave it to old people and showed that it could increase, could reduce the risk of, uh, specifically it reduced immunosenescence in elderly people. And I think that really got started to get people excited. And then after that, there's also the result on senescence. So there's another thing to add to the list. If you, if you kill senescent cells in mice, then they, they also live longer. And so we have a few concrete examples of interfering in the aging of a complex animal, a mammal, and, uh, and seeing significant results. And that sort of tells us that it's, transla- it's translatable now in a way that it wasn't before. Mm-hmm. And I know they gave rapamycin to dogs. Are those some of the dogs in the background? And I'm only, I'm only half kidding. No. <laughs> they have a lab full of dogs on rapamycin. Um, so I know one of the other problems with, with longevity research is that, especially in humans, that people live 
a long time. So it would be hard to know whether any intervention had a significant impact if you gave it to somebody in their 50s because they might naturally live till 80, so it would be 30-odd years until you knew anything. And that's why biomarkers are important, which is something that you're working on, although uh, I know you're working on more than that, which we'll talk about in a minute. But why are biomarkers of aging so important to understanding the impact of interventions? Well, basically for the reason you stated, right? We have to know if these interventions are wait, are working and we can't wait 50 years. Or even in a mouse model, we can't wait three or four years. Um, and most of these mouse lifespan studies, they're multi-year studies. And that's, that's just too long for a lot of progress to happen. Um, so with the right biomarker, you could hopefully evaluate whether these phenotypes are being impacted in a much shorter time scale. And I mean, really important in particular disease areas. For instance, for heart disease, uh, cholesterol levels are a surrogate endpoint that the FDA can use to approve a drug, and that's how statins got approved. Hmm. Now, you mentioned before we started recording that while biomarkers were a focus, or at least a focus of a lot of the media coverage about bioage, that is not the only thing that you're working on. Can you describe that in a little bit more detail now, exactly what it is that you're focused on? Yeah, so BioAge fundamentally is a biotechnology company that focuses that, that develops drugs to treat aging and also associated diseases. And what makes us unique as a company is that we're not focused around any single target or drug. Uh, instead, we use this data-driven systems biology approach to find the molecular pathways that drive aging. And the key experiment for us is to partner with these large human cohorts that have samples and health rec records collected over several decades. Um, so what we like to do is find a cohort that has blood in the freezer from, say, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And then we can take those samples and we can measure everything in them. We can measure all the proteins. We can measure all the metabolites. And then by integrating the, that data with the electronic health records, we can start to make a list of things like proteins where, like right now, we have a list of proteins where keep men in their 50s when they have higher levels of protein X, they live longer. Um, so these are themselves both biomarkers of mortality and therefore biomarkers of aging, but also potentially causal factors that you might want to interfere with uh, to impact aging. So you're getting data from, you mentioned a number of biobanks. I know there was uh, some Estonia data that, was, that has been mentioned often. I assume that there's uh, additional information from that. You're compiling all this information together. And then, as I understand it, machine learning, which is a big focus of this podcast, plays a role in helping to make sense of that. Now, is that primarily because you're using all of that unstructured electronic health record data, or does machine learning play a role in other parts of your process? It plays a role downstream of that as well. So our starting point is our sort of proprietary human data. And we make a list of, you know, from the electronic health records, from the proteomics, metabolomics, we make, we make a list of factors that impact aging. And then we also bring machine learning to bear to analyze those factors and start to prioritize the ones that might be causal for aging and not just correlative, right? We don't want factors that are like gray hair where, you know, a hair transplant is not going to make you live longer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you um, so for instance, we, we use all, all, all sorts of accessory data besides our, our human cohorts, like genetic data, like transcriptome data, and we use machine learning to combine that and to prioritize targets that we think are more likely to be causal in the aging process. We then go on and test those in the lab, um, so we're not satisfied with just in silico analyses. And from, from that, do you have a sense of how 
uh, accurate or how likely it is that a finding in silico translates into biology or the actual experiments? Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, I think it's a matter of prioritizing targets that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. I think that's what the main utility of in silico analyses are. We do a lot of uh, transcriptive analysis. We do a lot of genetic analysis. And, you know, if there's a protein where higher levels correspond to living longer, and if I go and look in our genetics database and see that there's variants in that protein that correlate it with a whole bunch of different age-related diseases in the sense that if you have a different variant that impacts your chance of getting the disease, it's much more likely to be a causal protein than one without those variants, but it's not um, guaranteed. And similarly, you could also miss some that, that don't have genetic variants but are still causal proteins. So it's, it's not a perfect process, but it's a great way to sort of really speed up finding a lot of the factors. Mm-hmm. And just on, on that note about speeding up, some of the things that you're, some of the resources that you're using uh, and some of the approaches, it seems like when you talk about it, this seems to me like one of those elusive, obvious ideas. Like, of course, this is how we should be doing it. But of course, there weren't companies like BioAge until fairly recently. So what are the factors that came together to create the opportunity for you? What, what was it a, a specifically a technological advances, uh, computational advances, algorithmic advances, or was it a number of things? Yeah, well, partly it's technological. Because as we discussed earlier, humans live too long. <laughs> and that, I mean, it, it's a good thing mm-hmm. <laughs> for us. And it's a bad thing. I'm for not complaining. Yeah. Figuring out the mechanisms that drive aging. And for that reason, most of the aging research done in academia and also by a lot of companies, doesn't focus on human aging. It focuses on aging of worms, aging of yeast, aging of flies, because it's a two-week experiment to sort of modify their lifespan. And what that means is that not a lot is known about the sort of unique mechanisms that drive human aging. And really for the first time now, with these omics technologies and with these biobanks, we can start to map out the pathways that are most important to human aging. And I think this is really an important way to approach the problem. I mean, there's a good reason why most drug discovery companies focused on, on heart disease or neurodegeneration are not using yeast or worms. Um, so there's a lot of human-specific biology that really we can only start to interrogate now um, with omics, with, with these machine learning methods, and with these cohorts. Mm-hmm. So a combination of the ability to generate data and analyze data, uh, that's been a theme running through a lot of the conversations I've had recently about uh, systems immunology and uh, metabolomics, and it seems like we can get a lot more data now, and we actually are able to use it. And uh, those two things coming together are driving a lot of uh, exponential progress. Are you able to talk about any of the interesting things you've discovered so far? Things that, because I know there are going to be people listening to the show that have a combined interest in drug discovery, life extension, and machine learning. Are there are there any interesting findings you've made that you can discuss publicly? Um, at this point, I can't really disclose any of the particular factors that we're working on. I will say that we are committed to eventually publish everything that we do, um, mm-hmm. you know, with some time delay uh, to get our IP down, uh, but it will eventually all be out there. Great. And how, how are you planning to go to market? Are you, are you thinking that it will be a partnership or a licensing model, um, or would you plan to commercialize products yourself, do you think? That's a great question. Uh, it's going to depend on what we're, I mean, in the best possible world, we do everything ourselves. Um, but of course, really, we're a platform company. So we're coming up with several different novel targets that are relevant to aging biology. 
And what we're doing is we're developing drugs for each of those targets. And then what we do with those drugs, um, in, you know, in one world we partner on particular disease-related indications, and in another world maybe we develop everything ourselves. Um, like every other company in the space right now, we're not trying to take these drugs to the clinic for aging. That's not an indication. Mm -hmm. So for each of our targets, we're selecting a particular age-related disease and where we, where we think the target biology is the most relevant. And that's the first indication that will get us to the FDA. So as a company, we're focused around really composition of matter IP, so making new drugs for our new targets and selecting indications for each of those. It actually raises a question to me. You've talked about the identification of proteins, biomarkers, uh, targets. Are you using machine learning for designing or generating um, novel molecular compounds? Or is it strictly, are you, are you then, are you screening libraries of existing compounds against some of the targets you identify? Yeah, so we use machine learning to find the targets, but to drug those targets, we're using straightforward like in vitro methods. So, well, in the case where, say, our target is a protein and more of the protein is good for you, then that's really a natural for a biologics approach, right? The protein mm -hmm. or some modification of it is the drug. Um, if it's a protein or a factor that you'd like less of, then I'm a big fan of DNA encoded libraries, which screen in vitro billions of compounds, um, which, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of the in silico approaches too, but I, I, for, the, for that task, I still think that uh, there's, a, there's an advantage for the wet biology approaches. Mm -hmm. I have two personal questions, personal-ish, and then some listener-submitted questions, believe it or not. Like I said, people are very interested in the topic. Uh, let's start with this one. So I've, I, I scanned through the articles that you've published. I did a PubMed search and, and read through, um, and you're quite prolific in this area. What motivates you specifically to focus on longevity research and the work you're doing? What drives you? I've been focused on longevity research really my entire academic career and before starting the company. And it just always seemed to me like there was so much greater opportunity for impact in that space than, you know, another company working on a subtype of cancer. And, and one that wasn't really properly addressed. As you mentioned, there's only starting to be a few companies now, but still, you know, barely any compared to any specific disease. So I just think there's a really tremendous opportunity for a really positive impact, and that motivates me. Great, yeah, and I think that, and I agree with you in terms of the amount of funding. It, it always surprises me how much money goes into creating yet another drug uh, to in a category where we have a number of generics <clears throat> versus yeah. something so fundamental to the human condition that even if there's a one in a thousand chance of success, that the, the you know the potential of that success would be, be would be so much more incredible. Uh, so I, I agree on that front. Um, and then this next question, and again, we talked in the intro about uh, about this a little bit, but to, to the extent that you'll disclose, what are what's anything that you do on a personal level uh, to extend your health span? And I already mentioned that I am a prolific. Uh, I take, I restrict my caloric intake. I take a huge number of supplements of varying kinds. And uh, my next uh, big bet, I think, is to to talk to my doctor about metformin, given the data on that. So I will at first confess my own sort of personal uh, plan. Is there anything that uh, that you do that that you think holds holds promise? 
Well, I, I'm definitely personally also very interested in living healthier longer and avoiding chronic disease as long as I can. Um, there aren't an awful lot of things that work just yet, but exercise, diet. Um, I do the intermittent fasting thing once a week or so, so dinner only, uh, and lots of caffeine. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the most robust associations really is, is high caffeine intake, well, coffee intake with lower all-cause mortality. Yeah, and the best part about that is that it's also coffee, which is delicious. delicious. <laughs> I, I will okay. be adding that form into the list in a few years as well. Yeah, okay, yeah, that was, and it's still one for me where I'm like, oh, when did the when did the benefit outweigh the, any potential risk? And I think uh, I think I'm I'm there. Uh, I'm thinking forty. <laughs> yeah, so I I hit that milestone last year, and I hit forty one this year, so I think it's time. Um, okay, so some so questions that listeners submitted. Uh, somebody was asking what data you analyze beyond the Estonian population, and and you mentioned uh, biobanks. So you don't have to be specific, but how broad is your data set currently? Yeah, it's fairly broad. We also work with the Framingham data set. We just closed a new partnership that I'm really excited about, and we'll probably do a press release on it soon. It's with the uh, it's the Kuakini Medical Center, and they have samples going back 50 years. So they have blood samples that are 50 years old, which I think is pretty unique, uh, along with really deep phenotyping of age-related diseases uh, for the next 50 years afterwards. Uh, so we're very excited to have that, that new partner, and we're just going to start to profile it deeply. Hmm. Okay, that's, uh, I got another question for you here. Again, listeners submitted. Um, a question about the gaps in biomarkers between mice and humans. So I guess here, if you if you find something really interesting in your human data and then you try to move it into a lab to do uh, some sort of test in mice, it doesn't always translate. Um, so I think this question is around how much do, how much or how often does it translate? Yeah, that's a great question. So for that reason that they don't translate very well, we're also doing lots of metabolomics and proteomics in mouse samples because for our internal in vivo studies, we want to make sure we're looking at something that is relevant to the aging of both species. I mean, the reason it, so mice, of course, they all die of cancer, right? They don't get heart disease. They don't have the same okay. spectrum of age-related diseases that we do. So we have to be careful to, uh, to look for those sets of biomarkers that are common, at least when we're doing our mouse experiments. Yeah, and I think there's also so many times when it, it, it's almost a cliche to read a, a press release about research that's been done in mice showing that some X extends their lifespan and, you know, that what, what would the implications be for humans? We actually don't always know. Um, the last listener submitted question here is, uh, so in one of the articles, I believe it was the Wired article, you talked about that you want to, uh, importantly, is to, is to bring down the speed at which we can determine whether a compound is influencing aging by analyzing uh, biomarkers that are going to change more rapidly in the face of, uh, of some compound. How much progress have you made at increasing the speed and bringing it down from four years to the months that you talked about? Yeah, we have identified several metabolites that change on a much faster time scale. Uh, and we use those internally for our shorter duration mouse assays. Uh, in addition to those, I'll mention that we also use those biomarkers of aging that have already been established. Like for instance, we, we usually do our experiments on very old mice. And if you take very old mice and you give them a rejuvenating intervention, something like rapamycin, you'll start to see tissue improvements, muscle improvements after about a month or so. So we do a full battery of phenotypic assays and also are using our proprietary biomarkers as well. 
I feel like I could uh, go on here for a long time, but I know we only have about five minutes left. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I had asked you or that you would like people to know? Um, I think you did a pretty good job of covering everything. Great. So then where can people learn more about you and, and connect with you? Yeah, so check out our website. Uh, by the way. Uh, and we also uh, should have another exciting paper uh, coming out very soon. Uh, so keep your eyes uh, open for that. I definitely will. I look forward to following your progress and hopefully keeping in touch uh, and sharing tips for extending healthy health span and, and, and lifespan. And you'll, have, you'll be much more informed than I will. Great. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Kristen. listen to my conversation with Kristen Fortney of BioAge Labs. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Just look for Artificial Intelligence and Drug Discovery in your favorite podcast player, then hit the subscribe button. Until our next episode, be well and work smart.